Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater, and it is my privilege to bring the message from God's Word this morning. So let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 5 today. And as you're turning there, I want to set the context, because we're wading into the middle of this book, and Solomon... He's been observing life under the sun, life in this world, and he's noted that so much of it is vanity, or the word is hevel, that life is mysterious, it's paradoxical, we can't always understand it. And he's, he's made these observations, if you want to think about them, uh, as, our, as a calendar. So he has shown us our life Monday through Friday, our work, our family, our finances, He's shown us our Saturdays, our living for the weekend, pleasure-seeking. And now he moves to our Sundays, to our religious and our spiritual lives. He moves from the sacred, from the secular to the sacred. And so, if you're here this morning, this passage has something to say to you. Because it's talking about what we do here, gathered together, on Sunday mornings. If you haven't been to church in years, or have never been to church, and you're wondering, what are these weird Christians doing here? This passage has something to say to you. And if you're here and you're like me, and you've been to church every Sunday since before you can remember, this passage has something to say to you. If you're anywhere on that spectrum, which we all are, we have uh, a message for us here. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the words of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you, bow, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. <coughs> Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. And we know that you look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at your word. So help us to tremble now. I pray that you would lift Jesus high and exalt him. You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Open our hearts to behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead us to worship you 
in spirit and in truth. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. Amen. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. These famous, or rather infamous, words by Karl Marx often cause us Christians to rise up in defense. We want to tell him he's wrong. But I think Solomon wouldn't be so fast to disagree with old Karl. See, this passage is about the temple. And Solomon, who wrote this book, he's the one who built that temple, and he built it right next door to his own house, the palace. So in a sense, King Solomon and Almighty God were next door neighbors. So no pressure on Solomon, right? <laughs> so I can imagine him leaving his study after a long day of, of pondering the mysteries of life under the sun, of writing this book, and he goes out on the front porch of the palace, if palaces have front porches, and he sits down in the rocking chair, starts to relax, when he looks over and notices the temple. He sees the worshipers coming and going, and he realizes that this, too, can so often be vanity. It can be just another opportunity to chase after the wind. That people so often go to God's house just to get another dose of religious opium. <laughs> so I think Solomon would say two words to Mr. Marx. Amen, but. Amen, but. Yes, religion often acts as an opiate, numbing us to what's most important in life. Spirituality can be a smokescreen, just adding to the vanity and the hevel of life under the sun. So amen. But, but you're missing something. There's more. There's so much more. And that's what Solomon wants to show us in this text. He wants to show us the value and the vanity of worship. That yes, there is great potential when we gather together for our meetings to be vain but there is eternal and significant value to be found here. So his message to us is this. True worship of the true God brings true meaning and satisfaction to life. And he shows us this. The three facets of worship. He shows us that we must approach God in worship with caution and confidence, with silence and sincerity, and then finally, with fear and with faith. Or we could say it, be careful, be quiet, and be afraid. That doesn't sound as nice. We'll stick with these. <laughs> so first, we must worship God with caution and confidence. The first half of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He literally says, watch your feet. Pay attention to how you walk. Be careful where you step. That's what he means. 
A lot of you have probably seen videos online of people texting while walking and what happens when they text and walk at the same time is they walk into uh, telephone poles, they walk into people, they trip into water fountains, they do all kinds of things. And it's funny, right? Like we see that and we laugh and we also think, oh man, I better not do that because that'd be really embarrassing to get on the internet uh, walking into a phone pole. And it's funny, but it's actually become a serious problem to the point where insurance companies have to actually make a new category for injuries. It's called distracted walking because people are walking. They're walking into, out into traffic and getting hit by cars. They're walking off you know, ledges and falling. They're actually hurting themselves this way. <laughs> Solomon is saying, do not distractedly walk into God's presence. When we approach the one true and living God, we are entering dangerous territory, God's very own presence. Now, when Solomon wrote this, God's house was the temple in Jerusalem. It was the central location of worship at that time. It was the place where sinful men could have access to Almighty God. This was the place of God's manifest presence among His people. It was the hot spot of God's holiness. Going to the temple was a dreadfully glorious experience. The problem for us is that Solomon's temple no longer exists. It was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again, and we can't go there. And we shouldn't want to go there. Because if we are in Christ, we have found something greater than the temple. Jesus didn't abolish the temple at His first coming. He fulfilled it. The new covenant temple is so much greater than the old. Think of, of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says that we are all living stones being built together into a house for God, a temple. And we are a royal priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and obedience. We have found something greater, something that Solomon couldn't have imagined. Full, complete, and unhindered access to God anytime, anywhere. When Christ died, what happened? That veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. We read a book with our kids, and it calls that veil in the temple God's keep-out sign. It was saying for sinners to keep out of God's holy presence. And when Jesus died, he ripped up that keep-out sign. He said sinners can now go in and meet with God. This would have blown Solomon's mind. And it makes this text all the more richer for us. Because <laughs> we don't just worship with caution, but we worship with confidence. Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 says that we can draw near to God with confidence. That we can enter into the holy places because Christ has made a new and a living way to God. We can draw near and come close to this holy God with confidence. We can come and not have dread and terror 
we can come with delight and with joy. We can come here for worship and approach God and experience Psalm 1611, where in His presence there is fullness of joy. And at God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 27.4, where David prays, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the Lord's beauty. We have confidence to approach God and experience that. Now we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us come to the house of the Lord. And notice he says, let us. Let us. Because we don't just worship God with caution and with confidence, but we worship in community. Going to the temple was not a one-on-one meeting between a believer and God. It was a community experience. It was worship with the people of God. And so this text flows right from last week, where chapter 4 was all about two is better than one. We need each other. We need Christians. We need the church. And the main thing that we do as a community together is this. It's worship. We are, first and foremost, a worshiping community. And so this passage, it does have a lot to say about worship in general, about our our private worship in the prayer closet, or our family worship around the dinner table, just our our ongoing worship throughout each day. It it speaks to that. (laughs) But the focus here is specifically on our public gathering together to worship God. Because something special happens. Something miraculous happens when the people of God gather together, when those living stones come together and the Spirit builds us into a temple and God is especially here. He is manifestly present in a way that He is not outside of our gatherings. He is here in a special way to bless us. So yes, all of, all of life is to be worship. All of life is to be worship. But the fuel for that worship, the foundation for that worship, is this. We gather together to ignite our worship and prepare for the rest of the week and to prepare for eternity, to worship with all the saints around the Savior's throne. So true worship of the true God brings true meaning and satisfaction to life. But now Solomon moves on to show us some hindrances to that worship and how we must respond. So we're about to get into the bulk of the text here. We're not going to go straight through it. We're going to look at some different emphases um, of this text. So we must worship God with caution and with confidence, but also with silence and sincerity. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen 
is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. As one translation put it, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. We all have friends who talk too much. Just admit it. We all do. You may be that friend who talks too much. And when you get the phone call from that particular individual and you see it's them, you hesitate. Right? You hesitate because you know if you answer the phone, you're going to be on there for at least an hour. At least. We all have that friend. And Solomon is saying, don't be that guy. Don't be that person. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> so when you come to worship God, do you come ready to listen or do you come to speak Do you let God set the agenda, set the terms, or do you bring your own? Do you try to bend God to your will, or do you come to be bent to His will? Do you come to listen? And when I talk about listening to God, I know that for some of us, the thought comes up of, I've tried to listen to God. He's not spoken to me. I've not heard Him. I would love to hear from God, but I've never heard His voice. I've never heard from God. How does God speak to us? Let me encourage you. God has spoken, and He has spoken through His Word. If you want to hear the voice of God, open your Bibles. Open your Bibles. He speaks to us. I love 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, I heard God's voice on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter is saying, I heard God's voice. But we have something more sure. The words of the prophets, the Bible. He's saying, I actually heard God's voice and I would rather read the Bible. Be encouraged. Come here to listen to God. I love that we just had a scripture reading. See, what I'm saying here, this is fallible. You have to double check me. That is God speaking to us when the word of God is read, when the call to worship is read. In the songs, we come here to listen and to hear truth in the songs we sing. To hear truth from believers around us and their encouragement to us, speaking into our lives. We come to listen. A good question to ask ourselves is, what do we open first? Our mouths or our Bibles? What do we open first in our, in our private worship? When we go alone to meet with God, do we come and just lay out all our requests before Him and then leave? Or do we come and get in the Word And let Him speak to us. Follow His leading, His guidance. God should always have the first word. 
Now, when Solomon exhorts us to listen, it implies obedience. Listening always implies obedience. In the Bible and just in, in life today, you parents, think about um, your kids. They're sitting down in front of the TV. Their eyes are glued to it. I'm looking at you guys, my kids. You go and you tell them, all right, guys, it's time to clean your room. Go clean it. They say, okay, yeah, we'll do it. You leave, come back 10 to 15 minutes later, and, and what's happened? Nothing. Right? <laughs> the TV's on, they're watching it, rooms are untouched. And what do we say to them? You didn't listen to me. You need to listen when I speak. And they can say, yeah, I heard you. Sure, I heard you. But we all know that listening means more than just hearing. Listening implies obedience. The rhythm of worship, this is what we see here, the rhythm of worship is the rhythm of revelation and response. Revelation and response. God reveals Himself and we respond rightly. He speaks and we sing. He gives an order and we give our obedience. This is the rhythm of revelation and response. It's being a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Obedience and worship cannot be separated. They are two sides of the same coin. As A.W. Tozer said, if you don't worship God seven days a week, you don't worship Him one day a week. This is Romans 12, 1-2 worship. It's offering to God our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's our true worship, our logical worship. But the only way that can happen is if verse 2 happens, if we renew our minds so that we can know the will of God, we can know what He thinks. And the renewal of the mind only happens when we listen to God's Word. And when we listen and we see what God has done for us in Christ, we gladly and freely offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. But it takes listening. <laughs> so let's think about some things that God told us during the last few years in Matthew. Because we heard a lot. But did we actually listen? Jesus said, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We heard him. But did we listen? Our Lord said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We heard Him. But did we listen? Did we respond? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And we, we heard Him say it. But did we listen? Because we can come week after week and listen to sermon after sermon and say, man, that was a good message. You know, Chris brought it hot today. That was a good sermon. And then weeks and months and years can go by and nothing can actually change. We need to listen. The biggest challenge to that, of course, is us. We talk too much. We're spiritual blabbermouths. Which is why he moves to the topic of vows. <laughs> Let's read verses 4 through 6. And I haven't forgotten about verse 3, so don't worry. We're coming back to it. When you vow a vow to God, 
Do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? It was common in Israel when you would come into the temple to make a vow to God, to promise Him something if He would answer your request. So think of Hannah. Right? She was barren. She wanted a child. And she promised that, God, if you, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you to serve you. And when he did that and he gave her Samuel, she kept her vow. <laughs> she gave the boy back to the Lord. But there was a problem with this. They would make vows at the temple. And then when someone would come and check on them, the messenger, as this text says, probably a, an official of the temple, a spiritual debt collector, you can think of it like that. They come to check on them, to hold them accountable to their vows, and they would make excuses. They would say that it was just a mistake, that they didn't really mean it. Now, vows aren't as common in worship today. We do take a few. I mean, think of a, when we have a baby dedication here, we promise to help nurture that child in the Lord. So there are some vows we make. But they're not as common. So we need to look at the point, at the deeper principle that Solomon is getting at. We are not to make big promises to God that we have no intention of keeping. Not to put on a godly show and then live contrary as soon as we leave the building. We're not to be rash in our commitments made to God. No matter how much we talk a big game, God will always call our bluff. So for example, Sunday mornings are often a spiritual high. Right? Emotions run deep. And we may not make a vow with our lips, but in our minds or in our hearts, we're saying to God, yes, I know I need to be a better father or husband, wife, mother. I know I need to share the gospel. Or I need to pray more or be in the word more. And we, we say to God, God, I promise things are going to change. From here on out, things are going to be different. I'm going to change. I promise. And then hours after leaving, we have already forgotten. Solomon says it would have been better if we didn't promise anything at all, if we had just kept quiet. And the opposite of that silence is the sacrifice of fools. Back in verse 1, it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Solomon is warning us here about worship that is thoughtless, meaningless, and mechanical. About just going through the motions. He's warning us about empty rituals that have a form of godliness, but deny its power. 
Our temptation is to turn worship into a formality and a superstition. To treat God like a heavenly Santa Claus or like a genie in a bottle because our desire is so often not for God Himself. But we just want to use Him like a butler to get the things that we really want. The things that the teacher has already shown us are vain and empty. So we might think, I I hope God will give me blank. You fill it in. I hope God will give me this promotion at work. I really need it. Or you students, I hope God lets me pass the exams. I'm not asking for an A. I just hope that He lets me pass. There we go. Or I hope that God will help my kids to grow up to be mature and successful. And we come here thinking in our hearts, maybe if I just sing loud enough, raise my hands high enough, give enough in the offering plate, take enough uh, notes during the sermon, maybe if I just do those things, then God will give me what I want. But this is a futile attempt to manipulate the hand of God. It's using worship as a means to an end. So he offers a warning in verse 6. He said, why should God be angry with your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When we're trying to grab onto these things. We, we want all of these things that aren't God. We try to fill our hands with them. And we use Sunday mornings to, to fill our hands with them. And he's saying, God will crumble those right before your eyes. He will rip them out of your grip. And he'll do that in his grace and in his mercy because he's pointing you to something better. He's pointing you to himself. He's showing you that those cisterns you're drinking of are are broken and can hold no water. And he's lifting our eyes to see the fountain of living water who can truly satisfy our souls. That's why in verse 2, he says these words, God is in heaven and you are on earth. He's trying to give us a Copernican shift. If you guys remember Copernicus, you know, for centuries, we had believed that the whole universe revolved around us, the earth. That we were at the middle of it all and everything was revolving around us. And then that troublemaker Copernicus came along and he said, I think you got it wrong. We were actually revolving around the sun quite a bit different. And he got killed for that. So, uh, Sorry, Copernicus. <laughs> but that's the kind of shift that Solomon is trying to give us. Because we so naturally come to worship self-centered, thinking that the universe and God himself revolves around us. And he's saying, no, no, that is far from the truth. God is at the center of everything. He is at the center of all reality, and he must be at the center of our worship. He's moving us from self-centered to God-centered worship. He's showing us the transcendence of God, that he's not the big guy upstairs. He's not the grandpa in the sky. He is holy, holy, holy. He is other and transcendent. He is far beyond us in every conceivable way. And yes, God 
He loves us and he draws near to us. But that is made even more amazing by the fact that he is so much greater than us and so far beyond us. This is the godness of God. And that's why we must listen to him. He's the only one that has a true word for us. He's the only one that has something to say that we need to hear. Henry Blodgett, uh, who's an editor for the website Business Insider, he tells a story about how a few years ago he was invited to a meeting on economics at the White House. It was just a bunch of kind of lower-level White House staffers, some other government officials, some press. And he says it was a pretty boring meeting. I mean, if some of you all are really into you know, global economics and you would have liked it, I would be with him. So... There were some people just kind of slouching in their seats, mindlessly scrolling on the computers, having some idle chit-chat with the person beside them. And then, unannounced and unexpected, then President Obama walks in the room. No one was expecting him, but in he came. And he said the whole atmosphere of the room changed like that, as you can imagine. There was no more slouching in their chairs. There was no more mindlessly scrolling through the computer, and there was no more idle chit-chat. They were quiet. Their mouths were shut, and their ears were open because they wanted to hear what this very important person had to say. How much more, then, should we long to hear from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? We listen. We come to listen because He is the only one who can help us to make sense of the mysteries of this world. Life under the sun can be such a paradox. So Solomon points us to the one beyond the sun. We need a word from outside of this world. So when we come here, we come to to be reoriented to what's actually true to have our perspectives changed. We come to have our minds renewed. And that can only happen when we listen. So that's why true worship of the true God brings true meaning and satisfaction to life. But that can only happen when we listen and respond with silence and sincerity. Too much talk, however, puts out the fire of worship. And all we're left with is smoke, vanity, a dream. Look at verse 3 and verse 7. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, There is vanity. Have you ever had a dream that seemed so vivid, so real, so filled with activity, but when you awoke, you realized that it was nothing. There was no reality at all. This can be true of our worship. It can seem so real, 
so exciting, so brimming with life and with activity. But when God in His grace awakens us, we realize that it wasn't even real. Our religion is make-believe. Our worship is pretend. And our spirituality is fantasy. And this makes our gatherings together potentially dangerous. He's saying they don't even know they're doing evil. And think about that word, evil. They think their worship is perfectly acceptable, but they have been fooled by their own hearts. And that may be you this morning. And the Lord is just beginning to show you what true worship is. And praise God for that. Lean into what He's doing there. We must worship with silence and sincerity. Finally, we must worship God with fear and faith. Last half of verse 7. <laughs> but God is the one you must fear. Our passage ends with the fear of God. This is the heart of all true worship. But we need to talk about it. Because the fear of God doesn't get talked about a lot these days. It's not the cool thing to talk about in, in Christian circles. We don't refer to people as God-fearing men and God-fearing women too often. So we need to rightly understand what is the fear of God. Because we don't fear Him like a child fears the dark or fears an angry father who might snap at them. No, we fear Him like we should fear approaching the sun. So beautifully life-giving, yet so destructively powerful. We must approach God with the reverence He deserves. I think that C.S. Lewis has done us a great service in the Chronicles of Narnia with pictures of the fear of God. They're everywhere in those books. And in the fifth book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the boy Eustace has been turned into a dragon. And he meets Aslan, the great lion. And when he's recalling this story later, he says, I was afraid when I met him. But I wasn't afraid that he would do something to me. He said, I was a dragon and he was a lion. I felt like he couldn't harm me. So I wasn't afraid of what he might do to me. I was just afraid of him. That's how we fear God. We don't fear Him because of what He might do to us. If we are in, in Christ, then 1 John 4 is true. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We don't fear God that He's going to punish us, that He's going to change His mind on our salvation. We don't fear God for what He might do to us. We fear Him because of who He is in all of His greatness and His glory. We have a trembling trust in Him, as Ben taught us a few weeks ago. I love that. Trembling trust. But fear, it actually means fear. I've heard so many times that, you know, the fear of God, it doesn't actually mean to be fearful, but it means to have a certain reverence and a respect or an awe and a wonder towards God. And that's true. All those ideas are included in this word fear. But Fear in the original Hebrew means fear. It actually means that we should stand before God trembling. 
He's trying to help us experience the worship of Psalm 2, where we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In true worship, joy and fear wonderfully and beautifully coexist. And the fear of God is the only place where true meaning and satisfaction can be found. That's why this book ends the way it does. When we get there in a few months, we're going to hear Solomon say, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Everything else in life is vain. Fear God. That's where true meaning and satisfaction can be found. So that must be at the center and the heart of our worship. But how can we come and meet with this God? He is holy, and we are the very opposite of holy. By nature, there is no fear of God before our eyes. We have traded the glory of God for pathetic idols, worshipped creation rather than Creator. We have failed to guard our steps. We've offered the sacrifice of fools. We have faithlessly broken our vows. Is there any hope for idolaters like us? Yes. Yes, because the most fearful thing about God, the most fearful thing about Him, is found in Psalm 130. <laughs> And there David says, O oh Lord, if you should mark iniquity, if you should record our sins, if you should write down everything we've done wrong, O oh Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, of course, no one. No one could stand before this holy God. And then he goes on with these glorious words. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the result of forgiveness, is that we stand there trembling before Him. The most fearful thing about God is that He forgives. When we realize how close we were to hell, and then Christ snatched us in His mercy and His grace, and He redeemed us, and we didn't deserve it, when we realize that, we should stand shaking in our boots before Him. And the temple is the place of forgiveness. It was the place where true sacrifices were offered. Not the sacrifice of fools. True sacrifices that made atonement. And that's why we don't worship just in the fear of God, but with faith in God. Solomon, the son of David has given us this instruction. But that's all He gave us. Jesus, great David's greater Son, has given us redemption. He didn't offer the sacrifice of fools. He offered Himself as the spotless, sinless sacrifice. He kept His vow to cut the new covenant and seal our redemption with His blood. He didn't just guard his steps in the temple. He is the temple. 
He is the true meeting place between God and His people, the only mediator between God and man. Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. And He presents us before the presence of His glory, spotless and blameless and with great joy. We can draw near to this holy God because of Christ, because of who He is and what He's done, because of His cross. So, if you don't know this God, come to Him. Christ has done everything needed to bring you to God. He died so that you might live and so that you might know the joy of true worship, both now and for eternity. Come to Him. Fear Him enough to not flee. Fear Him enough to stop running away from Him. And put your faith in Him. There is forgiveness with Him and plentiful redemption. So come to Him. If you do know Christ, I want you to be encouraged. Because we can hear these words from Solomon and, and just hang our heads low and think, man, I, I've done a terrible job of this. I'm a, real, I'm a real deadbeat. I messed it up. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, listen. Ask Him to show you what needs to change. Let Him lead you into true worship. But reflect on what God has done in you. That He has transformed you from his rebel and his enemy, to his child and his worshiper. Because another fearful thing about God is Philippians 2, 13 and 14. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you're in Christ, God's Spirit dwells within you. He Himself is leading you and producing the fruit that He desires. So you can reflect and say, God, I know that my worship is often flawed. I'm not perfect at this. But God, thank You for Your work in me. Thank You that I'm not who I am, that You have changed me. And that's not a time to, to pat ourselves on the back. That's a time to look at what God has done in redeeming you from the power of sin and giving Him all the glory. So, we have seen the value and the vanity of worship. It can be vain. We all know that. There's great potential for vanity here. But there is true, eternally significant value in worshiping God. True worship of the true God brings true meaning and satisfaction to life. And as we end, I want us to obey this text. I want us to keep our, our mouth shut and our ears open. So let's take a few moments and silently reflect. Let's sit in silence before the Lord and worship Him. Ask Him to reveal to us how He wants to use these words to conform us more and more into the image of His Son. Let's stop talking. I've talked enough. And let's spend time listening to the Lord.
So let's end with these words from Habakkuk 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him.